0: Good afternoon
1: and welcome. It's Tuesday, time to talk politics. And today, the big buzz is all about Ontario Green Party leader Mike Schreiner, who we will be talking to later in the show, by the way. He has been approached by a group of provincial liberals who want to draft him to run to lead their party. And this after two disastrous electoral showings by the Liberals. We, we've we heard about this particular idea before, but this is the first time Schreiner has said that he is considering it. So is it a good idea for him? Is it a good idea for the Liberals? We'll also talk about the new national standards for long-term care released this morning. And again, it's something that we will be talking about more later in the show. Of course, we want to hear from you. The numbers to call 416 toll free one 866 740 And now I'd like to welcome George Smitherman, former Ontario Liberal MPP for Toronto Centre and former Health Minister and Deputy Premier Lisa Wright, former Deputy Leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, and Peggy Nash, former NDP MPP for Parkdale High Park. Welcome, all of you, and thanks for joining us. Hello. 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 Let us begin with George then. So what about this move to draft Mike Schreiner?
2: You know, I wasn't a signatory to the letter, but I do trace my roots in the Ontario Liberal Party to the 1981 election. So I do have uh, more than a passing interest. I uh, endorsed Mike Schreiner when he ran in Guelph, even against the Liberal. I think that there's a lot of merit to the consideration because it teams up. Uh, two things. A party that uh, still has a very, very good residual brand, notwithstanding some challenges, and an individual who has really asserted himself well as a leader, but would seem to be attached to a brand which has some pretty serious limitations. So obviously, there's barriers, and some party loyalists could never see such a thing, but I actually thought it had a lot of merit. And as a Liberal supporter, he'd certainly be amongst the top two or three people that I would consider from the list.
1: Hmm. Lisa Wright, I mean, on the one hand, um, one thing I think we could all agree on about Mike Schreiner is that he's a guy who's considered to be really authentic. So Mm -hmm. what does it do to that authenticity, I mean, if he jumps ship to the Liberals and, you know, um, a lot of people would say the Liberals are basically all about power. So,
3: I mean, I look at it in two steps. Number one, he has to get his head around the notion that this isn't a merger of the Green Party of Ontario with the Liberal Party of Ontario. This is asking one guy if he wants to switch sides and cross the floor, as it were, to the Liberals. And then the second humongous step, which is to then run for leader of of this Liberal Party of Ontario. I I don't think they're talking about a merger because that would be far more complex. I think he hasn't lost his authenticity because he did the one thing that politicians never do, which is he admitted he's thinking about it. I mean, normally people play it close to their chest and he went, yeah, okay, I'm going to think about it. And good for him. Because usually these floor crossers are cloak and dagger, um, and they happen overnight. An announcement is made, and someone's walked the floor, and and uh, there you you've got a fait accompli. At least he's admitting to the folks in in his riding that he's thinking about it. He's probably getting feedback. And I would hasten to add that uh, if Mike Grant is a liberal, conservative, or or green member in Guelph, he probably could get elected under all three parties. He's that popular.
1: Huh. Well, I've got to say he's a nice guy and he seems like the real deal as opposed to uh, a a, a talking point manufacturer. Um, Peggy Nash. So, again, what do you make of that? I mean, uh, is it a good idea he might be able to get more things done as a liberal? But, um, you know, or is this going over to the dark side? (laughs) <laughs> um you know I know Mike and he is I think as
4: as was said an, an authentic politician he's very empathetic he's a wonderful communicator I, I I think most people in Ontario have a high regard for him personally um it is very different of course to be uh, a, a member or the leader of a party that's not contending for power versus a party that is contending for power. Um, and sometimes you end up defending positions that aren't entirely synonymous with your own or or uh, comfortable for you as an individual. Um, but I, I think this says two things. I think it says uh, one thing about the future of the Green Party, if he were to actually go to the Liberals, uh, which is that they have no future. And that would be a terrible message for him to send as someone who has been a lifelong Green activist. Uh, I think it would be seen as a terrible move, uh, almost a betrayal for his green principles. The second thing I'd say, is sorry, that the green party is full of betrayals. about running for the liberal leadership. It says we really don't have the talent in that group and we're looking for someone from outside. So I think that also might diminish the prospects of the liberal party.
1: Okay, sorry sorry to interrupt you there Peggy, but uh the Green Party, I would say at least at the national level is is full of betrayals. Um but <laughs> what what about the issue of sending a message that they don't have the talent? Well, they only have a few MPPs to begin with and uh well, some of them have already run um uh, unsuccessfully. George, I mean, do you worry well, about that?
2: You know, the thing is, like, uh, the NDP is choosing a very capable person. They had nobody ran against. (laughs) Nobody ran against her. The Liberals look like they're likely to have a good uh, selection of candidates, and I think each one of them has a lot of uh, merits. But um, I think that that's just political argument, uh, I suppose. But At the end of the day, the model hopefully will be that the independent members of the party will have a chance to make a selection for leader. And I think uh, if you've got Mike Schreiner on your list, that just enhances the uh, perception of talent being attracted and interested in the future of your party. And frankly, I mean, considering the outcome of the last two elections, which have been deeply disappointing, obviously... Uh, that the Liberals have, it looks like, at least four and maybe more candidates that are giving it a good, serious look, that's a pretty good sign for the sense of optimism which exists, notwithstanding how challenging it's been.
1: Okay. Uh, People want to talk about this, so I'm going to take a couple of calls. Rick in Wasega Beach. Hi, Rick.
5: Hi, good afternoon.
1: Go ahead. You're on the air.
5: I don't think uh, Mike joining the Liberal Party at the
2: provincial level will hurt him or the party i look at uh,
5: back in the 60s when a strong liberal party took on pierre elliot trudeau from the ndp didn't hurt either party and i don't see it hurting uh either
1: party now okay thanks rick for that i didn't know that pierre trudeau was was with the ndp is that right
2: Weren't all those three weren't all those wise men that were attracted to the party at that time also people that had tilted somewhat to to that perspective? I'm not too sure on my history, but I think so.
1: Well, they they were tilting in all kinds of ways. So I just didn't know <laughs> if they were card carrying members. Uh, let's uh, hear from Daryl in Toronto. Hi, Daryl.
6: Hello. Um, yeah. To me, it would almost be like you know cause the Liberal Party has gone that low that they're almost kind of like being taken over by the Green Party. My sense would be um, they should be trying to draft Gerard
5: Kennedy because, to me, he's you know the only one that kind of got away clean
6: from the McGinty-Win era, and he seems to be a very popular person. I think he would be a good leader for the uh, Ontario Liberal Party. And, frankly, they should probably roll the Green in as a faction of that party. How many seats do the Greens have in the legislature? That would
2: be
1: one. That would be one. Mike Schreiner. Thanks, Daryl. Uh, and uh, again, that's, that, that would be like some kind of huge process that's probably laid out and, uh, um, it, they have one seat and, uh, it's very interesting that, uh, people like Mike Schreiner and he could probably, as, uh, you guys pointed out, get elected no matter what party he was with. Uh, I'm sure that has not escaped the notice. And also thanks to Zeve, my producer, who looked up, uh, Pierre Trudeau and the NDP and it said he aligned himself with the principles. I don't think that he was a card carrying of the NDP, Uh, but that, of course, it's a little bit beside the point. So um, just to wrap this up, uh, uh, this particular topic, Lisa, what's the bottom line on this? Bottom line is
3: liberals need a party leader. Uh, They've got a really good one in the NDP right now. They've concluded their process, and the liberals got to do the same. And throwing his name on the table certainly is causing some interest in a liberal leadership race. So, you know, fat <laughs> Okay. That's
4: a good point, Lisa. I do agree with that.
1: Okay, well... It's basic mo- politics eh, at the end of the day. <laughs> moving right along. So, uh, we saw the release of these new national standards for long-term care, uh, and... Uh, They're voluntary, and I know that that uh, is giving a lot of people pause because, uh, you know, they're wondering, are these standards just going to gather dust or be used as a doorstop like so many other reports? George Smitherman, you're a former health minister.
2: Yeah, and I did a package of reforms on long-term care that are deemed by many to have been insufficient. I would say these are an excellent body of work that can be relied upon if a sufficiency of funding accompanies them. Then provinces will promulgate the regulations that the long-term sector works towards. It's a real dilemma in our country. We have health care as a national value, so the national government saw it as important to intervene, in a sense, in long-term care, now it's the delicate act of trying to get their intervention to take root. Next week's meeting, February 7th, if I remember right, is, I think, the place where we will actually see what is the prospect that these kind of suggestions, if you will, get rolled in to regulation. Because at the end of the day, the 628 or whatever it is, long-term care homes, They teach to the test, and the test is what the regulation says about what they must do.
1: Lisa, what's your take on this? Uh, I've got a lot of mixed emotions
3: on some of the recommendations. Some of the stuff is being done already. But uh, what I know and I draw upon from my experience is in order to make something mandatory, a regulation mandatory, you need to have enforcement. And I don't think any of the provinces are set up to deal with the amount of enforcement that would have to happen or an oversight that would have to happen. So starting with a voluntary standard that is actually out there for people to take a look at is a really, really good first step. And I'll just tuck in behind what George was talking about there and, and saying uh, you know, hopefully the provinces will, will pick and choose the, the pieces that make sense for them. But it's a good first step. It's a very good first step.
1: Uh, Peggy Nash, what's your take? I mean, I know that, again, uh, we'll be talking to uh, some stakeholders later in the show, uh, but people are worried, you know, if they're not enforced, uh, if they're not made mandatory, nothing is going to happen. And, of course, there's always the prospect of, you know, a jurisdictional fight over this.
4: Well, I I agree with those who believe that standards need to be mandatory. I agree they need to be enforceable. I also believe going to create national enforceable standards, you need to have dollars behind those standards because things like this, change like this doesn't come for free. But let's not forget that 80% of those who died from COVID were uh, seniors uh, or people in long term care. And so clearly our standards are not up to snuff. Uh, we had a particular problem in the private homes and we had a particular problem with uh, low pay and poor working conditions for many of the caregiving staff. So unless you're going to address the problem with, uh, with money, and you're going to improve the care and the staffing people get, and unless you're going to enforce that, I think this is more about public relations. I'm not sure substantially that conditions will change, and I, I think that that misreads the will of people who were outraged at the the loss of so many people in these homes during the pandemic. Uh, Libby, yes. if I
2: could just quickly say that if we take the Ford government at their word, okay, <laughs> people, people can decide who or not. <laughs> okay. they, have made, they have made very strikingly significant commitments to enhance the labor force in long-term care to get up to that four hours of daily care is a significant stride worth billions of dollars. I and I believe they've made commitments around that. And yesterday I saw they increased or doubled funding for nursing home. I believe it's the redevelopments. I would just like to make one point. The long term care vulnerability, which Peggy mentioned, is heartbreaking. And I think that a lot of the older homes that we have with wards where people were four to a room were a pronounced vulnerability. So I was really pleased to see yesterday. More money towards getting those older homes redeveloped because I think that's a massive part of the mix also towards making sure that these kind of circumstances never occur again.
1: And 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 it, there are real complications with that, including um, land availability. Yep, and. For sure. uh, and they, 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 that takes time and, uh, it's not keeping up with the numbers of people who required it. And, and Lisa, you know, and again, we are going to get into depth with this a little later in the show, but, uh, the Minister of Long-Term Care was asked about this and he said, gee, Ontario has the best standards in the country. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, we had the most, uh, long-term care residents basically dead, killed during COVID. Lisa?
3: Sure. Uh, so like, let's start with the 4.1 hours standard. Um, easily easily accomplished. Easily accomplished. You get uh, morning care uh, for a half an hour. You have evening care for the half an hour for when you go to bed. And then you have three meals and three snacks during the day. And each one of those take time. And then you have your medication runs. It is not difficult to show that an individual is getting 4.1 hours of individual one-on-one care. And I think people need to understand that because I think the notion is that you've got somebody with you for four hours a day. That's not how it works in long-term care homes. I think there are some really interesting standards. For example, having non-standardized times, flexibility in meals, which would be, I think, very beneficial for a lot of folks of different needs in long-term care homes, which would be a major change for the way in which a lot of these homes are actually run, where you do have very structured times when the when the food area is open, um, I think we do have good standards in Ontario. And I, you know, what I really want to see a, a very deep dive on what happened in the homes. What I can tell you is that the exclusion of family members from the ability to go in and help the people on the floor to feed people during the meal times definitely definitely was uh, a contributing factor to what we saw in terms of people not being cared for.
1: Yeah. George, you were about to say something. Oh, I'm sorry. I was was saying yes, like for
2: sure that was the case. And another point as one that took a look at the conditions around enforcement, which was spoken to is that we depended upon a model, which also relies on those family members to have councils in each of the home and as an active part of the governance and mm-hmm. active eyes on the situation. So they were lost to the direct care and love and support role that they play. They are also part and parcel of, in a certain sense, the early warning or enforcement yes. resource, and that was also lost. And that's why what Lisa said I so strongly agree with, and I find so many of those circumstances were just heartbreaking.
4: Uh-huh. Yeah. Peggy. So if I could just jump in and, 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 and just repeat that I think, you know, we're talking about the care sector and, and yes, you need, uh, appropriate physical facilities. You need a good ventilation. You need enough space for people. Uh, the four hours of care, uh, no question is, is important, but you're also dealing with caregivers and, Uh, yes, you need the family involved, but those, a part of, a big part of the problem was that those caregivers could not survive on the, on the money they were making and had to work at multiple homes and therefore spread the disease. And, you know, we really need to look at who's working in the homes, uh, the hours that they're getting, the salary that they're getting, the benefits. the the sick time or lack of sick time in the case of illness so that they can give the best care possible to people who are probably at the most vulnerable point in their lives. So uh, we, we really need to think about who is giving the care and treat them appropriately. We call them heroes during the pandemic. We should be really treating them appropriately with pay and working conditions.
1: Hmm. And uh, finally, and still with healthcare uh, in Ottawa. So uh, yesterday, Jugmeet Singh made some uh, slightly uh, bellicose noises, saying, "You know, if if the Prime Minister does not cough up the things we agreed on, uh, you know, we might uh, we might withdraw our support. Is there any chance of that, Lisa?"
3: I don't know, but I'm going to tell you, he's putting his money on the right bet. If there is something that's going to toss the government out in this country, it's an inattention to the health care system. And I don't know whether or not the NDP, uh, Peggy, has the ability to really rally behind this particular point and and get rid of the current government and replace the current government. But from a political point of view... A very smart move to put a marker down on health care. And if there's any one issue to take this government down on, it's that one. That's the one where you're going to find support uh, from from the voter for sure.
1: And but, Peggy, is the NDP in shape to have an election, even though you see popping up from time to time, uh, people speculating that the uh, another election uh, is going to happen sooner rather than later?
4: Well, there'll be lots of election speculation this year, and and I don't know. I'm not in the rooms where these discussions are taking place. But I can tell you this is, uh, I agree with Lisa, it is the most important issue for Canadians right now. And the issue of maintaining our publicly funded, publicly delivered healthcare system, is, is a key priority. I think that Jagmeet Singh is doing exactly what he needs to do in pressuring the Prime Minister to really stand up and, 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 uh, make sure that he's defending public Medicare, uh, with the provinces that we don't go down this slippery slope. And I don't think, at, I think at this point, he's probably best positioned to try to leverage the power he has in a minority government. But if you're going to pull the plug and go for an election, I agree with Lisa. I think this is probably the best issue.
1: George, uh, you know, he specifically cited Doug Ford and uh, the uh, the move to put some surgeries, cataract surgeries, in private clinics. Uh, you know, um, I... I'm just wondering, is that the right horse to back? We already have a lot of private delivery. And I'm just... is,
2: yeah, it's a good question. I think privatization is the right thing to focus on. What I'll watch for the NDP is whether they play the game, and I'll say it's a game, of mixing that up with two-tier. Because Mr. Trudeau can't use the Canada Health Act to stop Mr. Ford from privatizing services Unless they're two tier, which means that I can choose to pay and jump the queue. That is not the model Ford is proposing. So it's to me, that's the only tricky bit that I watch for is that they sometimes on the left, there's an artificial manufacturing of the Canada Health Act as if it is a barrier to innovation in the form of private delivery. It has never been such a barrier, but a lot of people have made it out to be. So that's a little, maybe that's a bit inside baseball, but that's kind of what I'm watching for. But I think that's absolutely the right territory for the NDP to be on, focused on privatization. I would just simply ask the question, why are you paying more for these to have them done outside of the public system? Uh
1: Well, and and are they? And you sort of can have two-tier. I know people who uh, say, okay, I'm going to upgrade to the non-standard, the highest quality of of cataract lenses, and and I'm going to get my surgery right away. Well,
2: I I wouldn't say that's two-tier in the sense that that person didn't get their surgery faster because they're paying a fee. Definitely we have allowed in the Ontario healthcare system – at the cataract level and with hips and knees too, the opportunity for an individual to upgrade their device. But I'm convinced, and I went through this with my mom, that the device that is on offer and paid for from OHIP is a very suitable product. So I think that the standard that is on offer for people is equal access. And if somebody wants to upgrade, yes, we have that flexibility built into the system. But the the, the starting standard, I'm convinced, is quite high and satisfactory.
1: Okay, I'm looking at the clock. Let us go around the virtual table, uh, starting with Peggy. What are you? What are you looking for in the coming week? What am I looking for in healthcare, or well, in general, in general.
4: In general. Uh, I'm, well, I'm, uh, hoping and expecting that there will be a positive outcome of the, within the healthcare negotiations with the provinces. Uh, I think we may shed a bit more light on the contracting out issue when Parliament examines that. And I'm expecting sparks to continue to fly when it comes to the economy and affordability as, uh, Canadians uh, continue to tighten their belts and see prices continue to affect their budget. So uh, I think it's going to be uh, tough for the government. It'll be interesting as we head into the budget period what the government's going to come up with. If, because it's a minority, of course, they could be facing an election at any time. So they can't tighten the budget too tight or they're going to be in trouble.
3: Lisa? Joe Biden's visit. I want to know when it is
4: and
3: uh, what announcements are going to happen around the time. Is he going to address Parliament? I'm really interested in that. Also, I would just put one pitch in. I'm absolutely ticked off that they're moving to a hybrid type of Parliament. I think it's inappropriate. I think all MPs should be sitting in the
1: House. And George, last 20 seconds to you. Well, I agree
2: with Lisa on uh, on that point. Well, I'm really looking forward to the First Minister's discussion on health care next week and trying to assess what that means for the prospect of an election, possibly sooner than later.
1: Okay. Uh, We will be talking again soon. Thank you so much, Peggy Nash, Lisa Raitt, and George Smitherman. Bye-bye. Thank you, Lisa. Bye-bye. Okay, Uh, we are taking a break, and when we come back, as promised, we'll have more on these long-term care standards. We'll tell you what the minister had to say, if you missed it in Bob's news, and what the reaction to that is.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio, heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back.
1: As we've been reporting all morning, new national standards for long-term care were released in Ottawa today. These were promised by the Trudeau Liberals and compiled by the Health Standards Organization. The guidelines include a call for at least four hours of direct care every day and higher pay for those who work in nursing homes. And in case you missed it on Bob's News, here's the response from Ontario Long-Term Care Minister Paul Calandra, when he was asked if he would impose these new standards, uh, we'll take a look
2: at them. I have uh, in the process of reviewing them. I have no interest in watering down what Ontario is already doing. So if, if uh, the federal standards don't meet our standards, I have no uh, 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 no qualms about saying uh, uh, that we will continue to follow Ontario's high standards.
1: Well. Stakeholders were pretty incredulous at that comment. After Calandra had a say earlier this morning, I spoke with geriatrician Dr. Samir Sinha, who chaired the technical committee devising these standards. The Minister of Long-Term Care, Paul Calandra, was just asked about it and, uh, he basically said, well, I'll have a look at this. I just want to make sure that it aligns with Ontario's very high standards.
6: Well, right now, Ontario, um, uh, didn't do terribly well during the pandemic. Um, it had one of the worst performances in the country. And we know that Ontario standards, certainly, um, it does have some standards, but they are not at the standard of our, our, our national long-term care standards. The Ontario currently, as you know, Libby is currently building 30,000 new beds and redeveloping 20,000 to 2015 pre-pandemic design standards, which talk about having two people to a room, for example, where the new CSA standards speak to having everybody having their own room, their own private bathroom, because that from an infection prevention and control measure alone is much safer. So we actually know what good quality care needs to look like. And I can tell you with certainty, Ontario's current standards do not meet the snuff. Ontario has very weak enforcement and accountability measures. Ontario, unlike Quebec, does not mandate accreditation against these standards. So I'm glad that Minister Calandro will look at Ontario standards versus these. Hopefully he will realize that Ontario standards are woefully inadequate and get to work in implementing um, um, or updating his standards to reflect the new national standards.
1: Among other things, he said, oh, uh, he thinks Ontario has the highest standards in the country and one of the highest inspector to home ratios.
6: It might have a high inspector-to-home ratio, but I can tell you those inspectors are not inspecting against the standard, and I disagree. Ontario does not want to have one of the highest standards of care. If it did, it wouldn't have seen some of the worst death tolls in the country.
1: So getting back to the meat of it, what are the standards that you are recommending?
6: Yeah, so as you said, I was chairing the the technical committee that was tasked with developing the new national long-term care standard, uh, for Canada and, uh, This has been a 24-month process that involves uh, consultations with uh, close to 19,000 Canadians. And really, we focus on developing standards that speak to what care needs to look like in a long-term care home. So what care needs to look like for residents who are living there and what care needs to look like for those who are working uh, in those homes, including their working conditions, and what the governance uh, structures need to look like to make sure that we are making sure That residents can have um, a high quality of life, high quality of care, but also that those who are working in, in these settings also have good, healthy working conditions as well. So these were absolutely comprehensive. They look at all the details. And there's a complementary standard that was developed by the CSA group that actually focuses on what the design and operations of a home need to look like as well to also support things like infection prevention and control um, and also uh, quality of
1: life. So what does care have to look like?
6: So what we really focused on and what we heard loud and clear is that care cannot be uh, based on what's. Uh, what's good for staff. It needs to be focused on what residents uh, actually want and need. So we call, we call that resident-centered care. So the idea that we need to first of all find out who this resident is, you know, what are their care needs and preferences? For example, when do they like to have breakfast? Uh, what are the things that they like to do? What's important to them uh, in terms of uh, supporting their overall care needs? And then being able to create a care plan that includes them that can actually better support those care needs as well. So that's what we call resident-centered care. And it also respects the fact that sometimes residents may prefer uh, not to do things or to do things that could cause them to live with risk. So they might not want to use a walker, and and you know that might make us a bit nervous that they they could fall. If that's what they want to do, and they're capable of making those decisions, we've got to enable them. We've got to support them. Um, and so that's what we talk about: what care needs to look like, uh, and how we can best enable that sort of care, so that we're not creating warehouses or factories where we're simply just uh, treating residents like pieces of meat, but actually like human beings and those who are working and caring for them, we're recognizing uh, that they need to be supported as well.
1: Is there anything in there, uh, what about uh, number of hours of care per resident, uh, uh, things that are pretty standard?
6: Absolutely. So we certainly talk uh, about uh, what we call appropriate staffing levels, appropriate staffing mix, uh, and appropriate staffing ratios. So we explained that very clearly. And we also point to the evidence that says that right now the literature says that at least 4.1 hours a day is what direct care uh, per resident should look like. Right now, just in context, we know that Ontario prior to the pandemic was providing 2.75 hours of care a day, and its long-term care commissioners actually came out and pressured the government to agree to adopt that four-hour-a-day standard. Uh, Nova Scotia has since come on board with that. Manitoba has moved to 3.8, but we still have several parts of the country that are still t- uh, delivering around the three-hour care a day mark, which really doesn't provide enough staffing and support to actually deliver what we call resident-centered care. So we really talk about you know what needs to be in place uh, and and what homes need to be supported to do in order to actually reach these standards of care.
1: And is there a timeline for that?
6: Yeah, we we basically say that we need to start doing this work now. What we do is we outline clearly over six sections and and uh, one hundred and eleven criteria exactly what that care needs to look like and and the guidelines for how we can actually meet that. Uh, and we're and right now we know that sixty eight percent of homes across Canada will actually be Uh, accrediting themselves against this new national standard, which is great, but I think it needs to be 100% of homes. And I think provinces and territories that have jurisdictional oversight here of long-term care need to make sure that their inspection, their enforcement, their accountability measures for their long-term care homes need to actually align with these standards. Because if they don't, then these standards become rather toothless uh, unless we actually tie real accountability measures to them as well.
1: But these standards are voluntary.
6: Right now, these standards are voluntary. Exactly. The federal government doesn't actually have jurisdiction over uh, this provincial and territorial responsibility. So we know that in provinces like Quebec, they have mandated in legislation the use of the standard for accreditation. I think that Quebec and all the other provinces should be doing not only that, but also should also be looking at how to actually say, this becomes the basis of inspections, um, of enforcement, of quality measures. And if we don't do that, it'll be hard for us to be able to ensure that we are seeing this level of care being provided in all of our long-term care homes.
1: What is to prevent this from just gathering dust, uh, like many other reports, if it's just voluntary?
6: Yeah, so the the reason why I agreed to actually chair the, uh, the committee that developed these standards was because I knew that 68% of Canadian homes would be adopting these standards as part of their accreditation. So they're not going to gather dust in that regard, but these standards could do so much more if they are fully implemented. So I think right now we have opportunities where provinces and territories are asking Ottawa for more money. Ottawa has already pledged at least $3 billion to support the implementation of these standards and improve long-term care. Ottawa is about to provide billions more to provinces to improve health care, including long-term care. I think it's an opportunity to say, yes, if provinces are willing to accept accountability, here's the ultimate form of accountability. New national standards hot off the press, you know, why don't you align with them
1: and we'll tie that money to them. Okay. Dr. Samir Sinha, thanks very much. Thanks for having me, Libby. Okay. Uh, We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we talk to the man of the hour, Mike Schreiner, the leader of the Ontario Green Party, uh, and the fact that he is considering accepting A draft offer from Ontario Liberals when we return.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We have been
1: talking about the prospect of Ontario Green Party leader jumping sh- ship and running to become leader of the Ontario Liberals. And now it's time to talk to the man himself. I'd like to welcome Mike Schreiner, leader of the Green Party of Ontario. Hi, Mike. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Lavita. My pleasure to be on as always. Okay, well that's great. Uh, So, uh, well, you're doing one thing differently, and that you are actually telling us that you're thinking about this. Yeah, you know what, Libby? People have been
5: telling me that Ontario needs bold action to really push back against the Ford government, destroying some of what we love about this province. I mean, our public health care, the green belt, the farmland that feeds us. I mean, you and I've had this conversation many times on your show that we need urgent action on the climate crisis. And that's always been my ambition to make a positive difference on these issues. I'm doing that as leader of the Ontario Greens. And on Sunday, as many people know now, um, a group of liberals sent me a pretty unique letter uh, challenging me to think about doing politics differently, uh, to move forward possibly together on some shared values around building a caring, connected, and climate-ready province. And I've responded by saying, you know what, I need some time to think about this. I need some time to consult with my constituents in Guelph, my friends and colleagues in the Green Movement, people across the province to talk about and have an open and transparent conversation about how we together can advance the issues that I've been fighting for and continue to fight for as the leader of the Ontario Green Party.
1: Now I gather that uh, this involves as many as 40 members of the Ontario Liberals is that right?
5: Yeah, I believe that were that's around how many uh signed the letter that was sent to me on Sunday morning.
1: Uh-huh. So, um I think there' there're kind of two things at play here, and by the way, you know uh you should be flattered. I just had my political panel, and they seem to agree they think you could get elected in in Guelph anyway, uh, no matter what party banner you are under
5: well you know obviously that's something the that people in Guelph decide, but let me you know my my philosophy of leadership has been one of um, service above self. And, you know, I work hard for my constituents in Guelph, and I feel like I work hard for people all across the province. And I think people in Ontario deserve uh, to be a part of this conversation. And, you know, this was a pretty unique situation to have members of another party reach out to me and suggest that I think about doing politics differently differently. Uh, in this particular way. And so, you know, I'm going to consult my, like I said, my constituents and, and Greens across the province, Liberals across the province, average folks across the province, and, and really get feedback on how I can advance the issues that I've been fighting for as, as the Green leader.
1: So on the one hand, you are viewed as, you know, a genuine kind of a guy uh and, uh, you know, that you uh, actually are very close with your principles. And on the other hand, you know, moving to another party, the Liberal Party, which a lot of people would say basically stands for power is a kind of a cynical thing or an opportunistic thing. Uh, what do you say to that view? Well, I would say that um, my values are
5: my values. People know what they are. I hold true to them. I am fighting to for urgent action on the climate crisis, for ending legislative poverty, for protecting the green belt, for pro- defending our public health care system, for making sure we set our economy up to be successful in the new climate economy. So we have the resources to invest in healthcare and education and social services. Those are the issues that guide me, will always guide me. And right now, I'm talking to people about how I can be most effective in working with them to fight for those issues, because I know they'll make a real difference. Uh, in improving people's lives here in
1: Ontario, so you think you could be more effective um, with a bigger party behind you? Correct?
5: No, I'm right now. I'm in I'm in a situation where I, I'm consulting with people. Um, this was a pretty unique ask, uh, and I'm I said I'll think about it. That I've said, give me some time uh, because the most important thing for me is to make sure that I fight for the issues that I know that my colleagues in the Green Movement across Ontario deeply believe in, and that I know my constituents in Guelph believe in, and that I know that people across this province, because they've been reaching out to me to say, you know, keep fighting, for example, to protect the Greenbelt, and And so I'm asking people how they think, you know, the best way that I can do that with them and for them at Queen's Park.
1: And what have you heard so far? Are people saying, Mike, go for it? Or they're saying, oh, I don't know?
5: Yeah, you know, I've heard a little bit of both. I've heard some people say,
6: don't do it, Mike.
5: I've heard other people say, yes, Mike, like, you know, unite progressives across Ontario and and, and, and push back against the Ford government. But I would say most people to be quite honest, have really said, you know what, I just really appreciate you opening this conversation up and giving us an opportunity to participate in it in a, you know, open and transparent way. And so, you know, that's that's why I responded to the letter in the way I did. Uh, I'm the kind of person who, you know, really puts people first. And in order to do that, I need to hear from people.
1: Now, what do you think? Say you said yes. Uh, so you are the sole member from the Ontario Green Party. What do you think it would do to the Ontario Green Party if uh, you you said yes? Well, I think
5: the fact that we're even having this conversation just shows how effective the Ontario Green Party is. What a difference it's made in Ontario politics, and what a difference we're making at Queen's Park right now. And the reason I'm consulting uh, with people across the province and especially Greens is I wanna make sure we maximize uh, the effect and the influence we're having at Queen's Park uh, on a whole host of issues, but especially on the climate crisis. Like we have to make sure this province is climate ready ready to withstand the extreme weather events that we're already experiencing to make sure our economy is ready to be successful as the world is moving towards you know a, a, a new climate economy that's emerging uh, and to ensure that we do that in order to protect the public institutions that you know really enhance our quality of life, our public health care, our education, our social services, uh, that are so important and make such a big difference in people's day to day lives.
1: You know, there are some people who say that drafting you would kind of underscore that liberals don't think they have the talent inside their own party. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, if you run for the leadership there, you're going to have to, you know, basically play politics and raise money. Do you, do you think, uh, what do you think about that aspect of it?
5: Well, you know, Libby, the, the thing that drives me in politics are the issues I believe in. And, and so much of it really is centered around my kids and their future. You know, my daughter's asking me if she'll ever be able to afford to own a home, given the housing crisis we're facing. You know, both my kids are saying, geez, what about our future? Like, is it going to be extreme weather events and just all, you know, like weeks with uh, hydro wires down and without electricity or flood risk? Um, You know, am I going to be able to get a really good paying job? Because I know the rest of the world's embracing the new climate economy. And so much of what drives me is to ensure that they and their generation have on the wonderful Ontario that I have. And, and those are the issues that I'm going to keep pushing on. Those are the issues that drive me. And I'm really wanting to talk to people right now about how I can best advance those issues at Queen's
1: Park. Uh-huh there you you did not answer my question <laughs> so just like a politician but but again the the uh the politics of it does that uh, give you any kind of pause and and also undertaking a leadership race
5: you know there there's a lot of politics at Queens park each and every day and you know for uh I'm in my second term now as an MPP and I've managed to navigate those politics, I think, pretty successfully, and primarily because I have an amazing green team around me that helps me punch well above my way to Queen's Park. And, you know, that team, as well as people across the province, I'm going to be looking for their input on how, you know, I can best advance the issues I've been working so hard on and continue to work hard on as the green leader and, and so, you know, I, I, um, I, I've been navigating politics. I'll continue to navigate politics because it's the issues that I care about and that I know people care about is what matters at the end of the day
1: okay but but again, it's a, like a completely different ball game you're You're a guy who uh with the green party, you're never going to become the premier doing that, so you're kind of in a different spot than if suddenly you are the liberal leader right Well, I don't
5: know I mean you know uh the the green party's growing, there's no doubt about that. Um, And I think what I've heard people saying and what certainly was in the letter that was sent to me on on Sunday was, you know, Mike, we're a group of liberals who are thinking about how we can do politics differently. You're a politician who does politics differently. You lead a party that's been showing Ontario how to do politics differently. Would you consider working with us to build, you know, a caring, connected, climate-ready Ontario? And my response is, I'm going to consult with people on that and, and uh, get back to you at some future date.
1: So you've said you need some time. How much time do you think you need to make this decision?
5: You know, I, uh, I'm going to not set a deadline on it right now primarily because I want to have enough time to consult uh, a lot of people and hear from a lot of people and hopefully just generate some really good ideas from folks about how we can build a progressive movement that's going to push back against, you know, the worst aspects of the Ford government, how we can best defend public health care, the Greenbelt, our farmland, address climate and legislative poverty, deal with affordable housing, like the issues that I'm championing. And and so I want to give myself enough time to have enough in-depth conversations to be able to respond in a thoughtful way.
1: Hmm. Well, it's, it's certainly starting to spark interest in a liberal leadership race. Is, uh, is there anything you'd like to leave us with on this, Mike?
5: You know what, Libby, I, I would just say, uh, and this is going to be a comment towards you, uh, you've done so many programs on how important it is to protect the green belt, the farmland that feeds us, the wetlands and the green space that protect us from flooding and clean our drinking water. And so I just appreciate the opportunity to come on to your show and have those conversations and this conversation. Uh, and I'm looking forward to the conversations I'm going to have with people across Ontario over the next few
1: days. Well, thank you so much for coming on and uh, keep us uh, in the loop on what is happening with that. All the best. And thanks for joining us, Mike Schreiner. Okay. Bye for now. Okay, bye-bye. And that is all the time we have for today.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio, heard weekdays from noon to 1. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.